Welcome to episode 106 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about all things related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot. How are you doing today, Dermot? Pretty good. Well, no, I'm not doing good. I have a headache and I don't mm-hmm. like it. I'll do the best I can mm-hmm. to sound chipper and happy. Mm-hmm. I have some manner of upper respiratory infection. And I will also do my best to sound chipper and happy because I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my voice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've had some Lemsip. I'm high on Lemsip. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm high on ibuprofen. <laughs> okay, this will be a good one then. Um, and I am thrilled for this episode. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I think this will be one of our great episodes. And listeners already know the answer to this. But I suspect this will be a long one. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to say on this topic. Okay. So it's good that we're both under the weather for it. Mm-hmm. All right. Before we get into our topic today, I do want to talk a little bit our, about our blog. We are a blog as well as a podcast. And you can find the blog at... Bloomsandbarnacles.com That's right. And we just recently published a blog post entitled Parallax. Do you remember what parallax is? Oh about? yeah, I remember this one easily enough. It's a good dermody topic, really. Yeah, astronomy. There used to be a, a ball on top of one of the buildings uh, uh, on the corner of the O'Connell Bridge, mm-hmm. and every day at a certain time, uh, the ball would descend. And uh, I think I'd never heard about it until uh, this part of Ulysses. Mm-hmm. And I think people have been talking about bring back the ball. The Dubliners want the ball back. I don't know about that. They're... Hashtag bring back the ball. Okay. Let's bring it back. It disappeared in the 1920s. It could be. Who would Probably melted down by a yeah. fucking scrapyard somewhere. Um, well, if you want to know more about the ball and many other things, it's a time ball. Mm. Um, and you could tell what time it was. If the ball was above that hadn't gone down yet, it was before a certain time. It was binary. And then after, mm-hmm. it was what? What was the time again? Total 1 p.m. 1 p.m., yeah. So you knew it was your probably lunch break was heading for the skids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to know about that and more, you should check out our blog post at bloomsandbarnacles.com. And Dermot, our resident artist, did a little bit of artwork for this, which mm. is quite odd if you see it out of context. <laughs> uh, so I'd like you to uh, talk about that. Parallax being seeing uh, the objects far away from two different viewpoints. Your eye can do it if you blink left and right. Uh, those of us watching me on Patreon can see me doing it right now. So the uh, the astronomer in the picture has eyes uh, on very uh, wide uh, separated mm-hmm. points on his head, so he can see extra parallax. And uh, they, they use the uh, six months apart. They uh, observe different stars in the sky mm-hmm. to see that they move. And if any of them move, then that proves that they're uh, nearer to us. The bigger the parallax, the closer they are. So um, that's basically a simple enough idea. But it took a very long time, 1830 or something, before a German astronomer Mm -hmm. discovered the first parallax, which was the final proof that the Earth moved around the sun. It wasn't until that discovery that... We were really sure. ...that uh, heliocentrism was uh, uh, proven by observation rather than just calculations. Do you remember this astronomer's name? Is it Hall or Ball or Sir Robert like Ball? Ball. That's ironically Ball. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a ball again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think Joyce uses the time ball to kind of do the little word association. It does a lot in Ulysses to get to Sir Robert Ball, parallax, mm-hmm. and then parallax points us to a lot of the themes that are under the surface in Ulysses. Yeah, two different points of view. Mm-hmm. Same thing seen from different. Mm-hmm. So check it out, Parallax. I'm quite pleased with that post and how it came out. So check it out. It'll be a blog, uh, a podcast episode eventually. And I think Dermot will really have fun with that because he's a big astronomy buff. So, mm-hmm. um, 
We also have some artwork for our episode today about the identity of the man in the Macintosh, one of the great unsolved mysteries of Ulysses, and Dermot's done maybe some equally inscrutable artwork for that. For those familiar with comic book art, uh, they'll recognize uh, mm-hmm. Rorschach from Alan Moore's comic, The Watchmen, and he's uh, the scummiest superhero of all time, and he subsists on the diet of cold baked beans. But he's, he wears like a, a, a kind of a dirty, filthy cloth over his face. It's like mm-hmm. an ink blob, but it's always changing. Like it's a Rorschach test. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's Rorsch- Rorschach is the man in the Macintosh for mm-hmm. me anyway. So. Is there any Be- reason why? Because I was reading your post about who people think the man is. And mm-hmm. I thought this is a Rorschach test. Like mm-hmm. it's everyone's going to have their yeah. own different viewpoint. So that's why that's I really did really clever. Yeah, that's a- All right. Uh, we got a few shout-outs before we move forward. Uh, first of all, thank you to all of our donors on Patreon and PayPal. You make a one-time donation at PayPal or a monthly recurring subscription at Patreon. Uh, if you sign up at Patreon, you get a video version of this episode. You get it a couple days early, and you get a bonus episode each month. And this is still March 2023. What is our bonus episode about this month? Strumpa City. Mm-hmm. Which I believe is another extraordinarily long episode of you mm. of our our podcast. Yeah, heavy but, heavy editing. I've been putting it off, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, but yeah. get that up soon. Yeah, I'm very pleased with how that came out. If you'd like to support us in other ways, uh, leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. If you write us a little review, I'll read it out. And you can also keep up with all of our comings and goings in our newsletter, which you can sign up for for free at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Mm-hmm. Or follow us at Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Uh, finally, we have I, I solicited a couple of... Uh, how do I want to say this? I, I asked our listeners and readers for their Macintosh theories. And I have heard many, many theories. And I still managed to hear two that I had never heard before. Um, so I'm going to share those with you. Because most of the others are covered in the episode. Um, I also asked for theories back when we did this as a blog post. And so it's amazing how you you can always find new things in Ulysses. Um, But here's a couple that you might not have heard before. Uh, One theory is that Macintosh is the mysterious Penrose. We never really learned who Penrose is in Ulysses. And this is sent to me by listener Owen. Um... So he is described in Lestragonians as what was the name of that priesty looking chap was always squinting in when he passed. So it's some guy who kind of looked like a priest that was looking in the Bloom's house when he walked by. Kind of a weirdo. Um, Bloom kind of can't remember his name, but eventually does. I don't have much more to go on than, than that. He shows up later in Ithaca. Bloom has a list of people he suspects of being Molly's. Um, suitors other than himself and Penrose is in that list mm-hmm. so that'll be one we have to look into more as we start I start researching some Lestragonians topics um, and I have one more the theory uh, this is sent in by listener Simon and his theory I find actually very interesting um, is that the man in the Ma- Macintosh is HCE from Finnegan's Wake the main character Finnegan's Wake and his Reasoning is that there is a line, and he sent this to me as page 443, 443 of Finnegan's Wake, says, quote, a man in brown about town picking up ideas of well over or about 50, 60 or so pithecoid proportions, and in brackets, ape-like. 
Um, and he says, this is his explanation. Why don't you go ahead and read that? Now in Hades, our mysterious man is just wearing a Macintosh, but in Wandering Rock and Cyclops, the description is of a brown Macintosh or a man in brown about town. So my theory, based largely on the word brown, is that Joyce has included HCE from Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses, and specifically during the funeral, which does relate the dead body and the wake in Finnegan's Wake. It would be interesting if we knew when the sections about the Macintosh man were added to the manuscript. If they were a late addition, then you could imagine Joyce had already been given some thought to his next work, and placing a key protagonist from that work into Ulysses would not surprise me. All right. Yeah, so and I, I, yeah. I know very little about a little bit about Finnegan's Wake, but I know that Ulysses is referenced as the Blue Book of Eccles in Finnegan's Wake, so there's an ability for them to overlap. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Dubliners and Portrait and Ulysses all overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Joyce saw all of his works as a part of a greater Joycean extended universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I mean, I really like that idea. I I would, you know, for either either of these, I I require a little more evidence because I spent so long reading all of these different theories that I've become. I I think that I'm I'm about to um, rip apart everybody's <laughs> favorite Macintosh theories. Now I'll do it very nicely. There's there's no answer to this. So if you have a theory you really like, I say stick with it. Um, this will be a rare instance where I give my own personal theory on this because I I often will kind of hold that back just in the interest of, I guess, Ulysses agnosticism. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, this is an unsolved mystery. So the answer is still out there. And as we'll see as we present the topic, I think Joyce had an idea in mind. I just don't know that he ever wrote it down or told anyone. So, or if he told someone, they took it with them because, I, you know, that's really the only way to know what Joyce is thinking. Because if he says what he's thinking, and even then, hmm. all right. So, if you're following along at home, we're going to be reading from Hades today, the sixth episode of Ulysses. This will be based on a short paragraph from page 110 in my copy, the 1990 Vintage International Edition. But we're kind of Macintosh is introduced in Hades. He reappears several times throughout the novel, so we're going to jump around a bit. Um, to gather all the details we can about Macintosh. Um, but this is a great mystery of Ulysses, mm. and I really enjoyed this topic. So before we jump into it, um, I first I have a picture I want you to describe of yes. a man in a Macintosh. It's a Columbo. <laughs> yeah, it's just Columbo. <laughs> He's a man in a Macintosh. He, he solves mysteries. Yeah. So I thought yeah. he'd be a good um, the spirit to look over us today. Okay. <laughs> spirit of Columbo. Working class hero. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yo, um, he was like 28 when he did that role, and he looks like he's 40. Borgian syndrome. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You, so. you look old when you're young, but you never look any older than that. Great. All right. Well, Dermot's going to pick a nice picture of Peter Falk to put in the video. Yes. Probably from Wings of Desire when he plays himself. No, as Columbo when he's wearing a <laughs> Macintosh. He's a mystery man in a Macintosh. Mm-hmm. He's a even more interesting character in Wings of Desire. You can put both. This is going to be a long video. So before we get into the specifics or even read the passage from Hades where he's introduced. What do you know about Macintosh? Macintosh? Yeah, the man in the Macintosh. That's it. He's just this extra 13th person at the funeral. Mm-hmm. And uh, people, he's never spelled out who he is. So mm-hmm. people could fight about it forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, that's pretty much it. So let's read the 
He was... Do you remember how he's described in the last passage we read in episode 105? A lanky galoot. A lanky-looking galoot, right. Bloom doesn't know who he is. Um, and so this is the pa- next paragraph after the last bit we read. Okay. Mr. Bloom stood far back, his hat in his hand, counting the bared heads. Twelve. I'm thirteen. No, the chap in the Macintosh is thirteen. Death's number. Where the juice did he pop out of? He wasn't in the chapel. That I'll swear. Silly superstition, that, about 13. Okay, thoughts about that? Hmm. Okay, so again, he's clearly a mystery mm-hmm. man. Um, 13, I think, the superstition being from the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. Jesus and 12 disciples, one's a Judas. Um, other than that... One doesn't want to be Judas. Which is Coven, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. That's, I mean, it's it's very short, and it's um, Hades is one of the more straightforward episodes. I'm sure you've noticed. Mm-hmm. Like yes, very very direct. Mm-hmm. But I I find it the Ulysses culminates in the high weirdness of Cersei. Mm-hmm. But there are all these little ripples that start showing up beforehand, mm-hmm. and this is this is one of the notable ripples. Okay. So um. I'm going to go through this kind of as systematically as I can. And the first thing we need to ponder then is what do we know about Macintosh? The, the man or the coat? Well, I'm going to refer to him as Macintosh, and there's okay. a reason for that. Right. And you'll see why. Um, before we can piece together Macintosh's true identity, we have to gather all the information about him available within the text of Ulysses. Um, he only appears really a handful of times handful i always think to mean five mm-hmm. i think he comes up fewer than five times but very few eh, maybe five. it doesn't matter um so we kind of have to glean what details we can from those brief encounters so we're going to start with hades we know he first emerges at patty dignam's funeral in glassdevon cemetery now bloom is not the only one to see him uh joe hines do you remember who joe hines is no, i forget Sorry. he's a reporter from the freeman's journal um and he also spots macintosh amongst the mourners mm-hmm. Um, and he's there basically to write up a description of the funeral for the evening edition of the Freeman's Journal, mm-hmm. and he just wants to take down the name of everyone. So remember when Bloom meets McCoy in Lotus Eaters, he mm-hmm. says, make sure you put my name in it. Right. So um, Bloom kind of does that. And uh, so Joe Hines, though, doesn't also doesn't know who the man in the Macintosh is, so his attempt to get this information out of Bloom kind of leads to one of these great, communication blunders that occur in Ulysses. So there's an exchange here I want you to read between Heinz and Bloom. This is from page 112 in my copy. And tell us, Heinz said, do you know that fellow when the fellow was over there in the... He looked around. Macintosh. Yes, I saw him, Mr. Bloom said. Where is he now? Mantosh, Heinz said, scribbling. So that would be pronounced Macintosh. Oh, so he actually is written yeah. M apostrophe yeah. in Tosh, but it's pronounced Macintosh, yeah. Heinz said, scribbling. I don't know who he is. Is that his name? He moved away, looking about him. No, Mr. Bloom began, turning and stopping. I say, Hines. Didn't hear. What? Where has he disappeared to? Not a sign. Well, of all the... Has anybody here seen? K-E-L-L. Become invisible. Good Lord. What became of him? So, give me your thoughts on that Sounds like a magical being. He's really freaked them out. Yeah. Yeah, like he's somebody who just beamed up to the Starship Enterprise or Mm -hmm. something, yeah. Yeah, and we've been to the part of Glasnevin where Matthew Kane, the model for Patty Dignam, is buried. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like something where there'd be a lot of folks kind of moseying the, by. Yeah, or where you could step behind 
an object or like a big tomb or anything and mm-hmm. be out of sight, right? Like mm-hmm. it was fairly open there. Mm-hmm. So if he was there, he must have some reason to be there mm-hmm. if he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the evening edition of the Freeman's Journal, Bloom will get a hold of later in Ulysses. And Hines has done, has very kindly included a Mr. McIntosh amongst the mourners mm-hmm. and C.P. McCoy and a Mr. L. Boom. He misspells Bloom's name. Oh, okay. Um, as those present at Dignam's funeral. So we can infer from this that McIntosh is not a member of, of Bloom's social circle. Right. Because they don't know who he is. Uh, curiously enough, the other men don't remark at all on his presence, apart from Hines. Mm-hmm. So Bloom and Hines see him for sure. And that's in your, your little image of Rorschach from uh, Watchmen. You can see Bloom and Hines in the background kind of right. looking at him. Yeah. McIntosh um, brings the total number of mourners to 13. So right out of the gate, associating him with sort of death and ill favor, this unlucky number. Mm. Um he is unknown to the men who spot him, as we said. He pops in and out of the scene rather suddenly. You know, there's no mention of him, like, you know, like kind of trailing behind as they walk to the grave. And he's not really mentioned again in Hades after this. And his arrival, though, is heralded with the braying of a donkey, which is an ancient omen of death. Hmm. So this is also from page 110. Far away a donkey braid, rain, no such ass. Never see a dead one, they say. Shame of death. They hide. Also, poor Papa went away. All right. So that's the end of their encounter with Macintosh in Hades. Hmm. So we're going to jump ahead to the 10th episode called Wandering Rocks. Um, And this is from page 254. So kind of the organizing event of Wandering Rocks is that the viceregal cavalcade is going through Dublin and it's almost like a pulp fiction where there are all these overlapping encounters of people as this cavalcade goes through the city. Mm. Um, so right at the end of that chapter, that episode, Macintosh resurfaces as the viceregal cavalcade clavers, clatters through the streets of Dublin. So there's one sentence there. In Lower Mount Street, a pedestrian in a brown Macintosh eating dry bread passed swiftly and unscathed across the viceroy's path. All right. So... Assuming this is our same Macintosh. It's him. We learn... What do we learn here? He's taking a little risk, trying to, like, daring the Viceroy to run him down. Mm-hmm. And what does he like to eat? Dry bread. Yeah. Mm. Kind of odd. Isn't it strange? Who would eat dry bread? Yeah. Uh, in Cyclops, which is the episode in Barney Kiernan's pub with the citizen, mm-hmm. page 333 in my copy, he... He, and by he, I mean Macintosh, shows up in the thoughts of the anonymous narrator of that. Mm-hmm. So there's one sentence there. The man in the brown Macintosh loves a lady who is dead. So what do we learn here? Oh, a tragic backstory. Tragic like. backstory. Yes. Mm-hmm. Also, by the way, dry bread. You know who else ate dry bread? Who? People at the Last Supper. Oh, okay. Mm. All right. And... Next, we have Oxen of the Sun, which will be familiar to readers of Ulysses. It's a long, complicated chapter, but this is from page 427, which, again, is at the very, very end of the episode. And Macintosh appears amidst the drunken cacophony of medical students in Burke's pub. And I'm going to subject Dermot to reading 
from Oxen of the Sun. <clears throat> Golly, what Tunkin's yon guy in the Macintosh? I'll take that again. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Golly, what in Tunkin's yon guy in the Macintosh? Dusty roads, peep at his wearables. By mighty, what's he got? Jubilee mutton, Bovril by James. Wants it real bad. Do you can bear socks? Seedy cussing the Richmond. Raw there. Thought he had a deposit of lead in his penis. Trumpery insanity. Bartle the bread, we called him. That, sir, was once a prosperous sit. Man all tattered and torn that married a maiden all forlorn. Slung her hook, she did. Here see lost love. Walking Macintosh of Lonely Canyon. Tuck and turn in. Schedule time. Nicks for the hornies. Pardon? Seen him today at a rune foul? Okay. Thoughts? Mm. No. Okay. <laughs> what, well, rune foul is funeral, right? Yeah, rune foul. That, that's easy enough. Yeah. Uh, are these all different people talking? This is meant to be... So all these students are getting drunk together... And they're kind of outside the pub at the end of the episode, and they're, you know, they're a bunch of drunken young men, and mm-hmm. they see this, this guy come up, and they're kind of mm-hmm. cajoling him, I think. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way to put it. Mm-hmm. It's definitely the hardest, hardest to parse section I've, I've made you read so far. Yeah, by far. Hmm. Yeah, like you're pulling that apart, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. What? Whatten Tunket's young guy in the Macintosh. So that's like there's some they're they're seeing the man in the Macintosh, mm-hmm. right? They're saying, "What's up with that guy over there in the yeah, Macintosh?" Yeah, Dusty Rhodes. Mm-hmm. Peep at his wearables. Like, look at what he's wearing. Mm-hmm. By mighty, what's he got? Like, they're asking questions about him. Jubilee mutton. Uh, Jubilee is like a royal procession sort of mm-hmm. thing. Is that a? They, they're wondering uh, if he's got Jubilee mutton. There's more to talk about there, but I don't okay. want to get too into it. But bo- they bo- realize he's got. Bovril by James. What's Bovril? The disgusting uh, <laughs> Our American s- listeners. slurry that you put on toast. And it's it's like Marmite. It's uh, You love it or you hate no, it. No, it's mm. sometimes called a beef tea. Uh, yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah, it's, it's disgusting. you drink it. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how it's still in business. I think they still exist. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants yeah. to try this, you're welcome. You could go to the store you right now You can go or order it. If you're in America, you can probably get it in an import shop. No need to do that. Go do it. Try it. Um... Uh, wants it real wants it bad, real bad. So he's sucking down that bovril. So he's actually drinking bovril. He's he's like God Almighty. Um, the raw there. You can bear socks. CD cuss in the Richmond raw. That raw there is like they're saying rather. Raw, rather. Oh, oh, like a Dublin Four. Mm, or like a upper class. Rather, yeah, like that. I yeah, get. Yeah, yeah. Thought he had a deposit of lead in his penis. Trumpery and sanity. The, the implication, not that they speak like that, but they're doing it as like a little jokey joke. Okay. I think. Okay. We still do that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, trumpery insanity. Well, there's a, two words that go together. Do you know what Very the Richmond is? It's referred to as Dottyville in the in Telemachus. No. It's a, it's a, a, a hospital for the, the mentally ill. Oh, okay. She'll say. Bertle the bread, we calls him. Why do you think he's Bartle the bread? Bartle the bread. I don't what know. did we see him doing in Wandering Rocks? No, eating bread. Yeah. So they, they know this guy. They've seen That's, him. They know who yes. he is. And they, he walks mm-hmm. around eating bread and they call him Bartle the bread. That, sir, was once a prosperous sit. What's a sit? Citizen. Yeah. Man all tattered and torn that married a maiden all forlorn. So remember he had a 
the ma- the man in the brown Macintosh loves a lady who's dead. Mm-hmm. Slung her hook, she did. Slung to sling one's hook can mean that she died. Okay. Um, see here, lost love or here, see lost love. Walking Macintosh of Lonely Canyon. Talking terms, schedule time. Nick's for the horniest pardon. Seen him today at a Runafall. So who is that comment probably addressed to? Oh, who to? Who are they talking to? Yeah, yeah. So they're kind of saying to Bloom, who is amongst these guys. Oh, Bloom is with this, the circle yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I see, I see. This is where Bloom and Stephen's paths kind of cross. Okay. So yeah. they're saying, oh, you saw him today, didn't you? Mm-hmm. See, you know, you saw mm-hmm. him at a, the funeral. Uh, so um, this kind of both confirms and adds to the riddles surrounding Macintosh. So uh, they refer to him as Dusty Rhodes. What is Dusty Rhodes? Apart from a dusty road, I don't know okay. what that's referring to. Um, there's a really great short article about this on James Joyce online notes, which you can find linked in our show notes, but it's a general nickname from that period for a a tramp, uh, an unhoused person. Uh, so Macintosh kind of fits the bill in his threadbare wearables, his bare socks, meaning they're probably missing heels or toes or something. Mm -hmm. Certainly seeable through his shoes, visible through his shoes, which would give him something in common with Steven. Mm. Uh, although I think Stephen on June 16th finally has a good pair of shoes. Uh, we know he's sipping Bovril, uh, it's described as beef tea. I think it's kind of like a brothy drink. Yeah. Uh, Dermot has nothing good to say about Bovril. I found a period mm. ad for Bovril here. Mm. Can you describe what you're seeing? The two infallible powers, the Pope and Bovril. And it's the Pope drinking a nice big cup of Bovril. <laughs> and he has like a big tank of it shaped like a rook from a chess <laughs> yes. set. That's that's insane. That'll be on the website. <laughs> um, so it was used used as a remedy in that day for like if you're like me today, you're feeling a little under the weather, you might get a big cup of bovril. Mm-hmm. I've gone with tea and honey, but you know at that time, uh, you might reach for a bovril, mm-hmm. and you could still reach for a bovril today. Bovril and Lemsip should both sponsor us because we're doing free marketing for these products. So um, one of the medical students recognizes Macintosh as a patient from the Richmond, meaning the Richmond Asylum. Uh, We mentioned this was Dottyville back Mm -hmm. in Telemachus. Um, And it seems that Macintosh might be a, a, a patient from the richmond Mm -hmm. this is the implication here and that he delusionally complained that he has a deposit of lead in his penis oh and so we learn another of his nicknames which is bartle the bread possibly because of his uh, penchant for dry bread Mm -hmm. he was once a prosperous citizen but seems to have fallen on hard times possibly because of mental illness or because of a broken heart because his lost love has slung her hook which could mean that she died, but it can also mean that it doesn't have to mean that. It was also sometimes used to mean that she just left him. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, either one of those. Uh, and the final line quoted above, seeing him today at a runafall, it seems to be directed at Bloom, who's with all these boisterous students. Um, it's a play on funeral. Uh, if you're not sure why, look at how it's spelled, I guess. Um, and here we see this man who's consumed by insanity and destitution, which adds to Macintosh's air of tragedy. Hmm. Um, and it might explain why Macintosh was at Glasnevin Cemetery. You know, maybe he's visiting the grave of his lost love. Right. You know. Um, all right. You might have thought we're done, but we're not. 
Let's move on to Cersei, and this is page 485 in mine. Uh, there are a few final hallucinatory hints about Macintosh. So Cersei is a very weird chapter overall. So, you know, it's it's very hallucinatory. Mm -hmm. It might be real. It might not be. It might all be in Bloom's head. Who knows? Um, but there's a scene where Macintosh rises through a trap door in the floor. And while Bloom is kind of riding high and he is there basically only to tear Bloom down. And it, uh, I didn't color these blue, but A, B, and C there. A man in a brown Macintosh springs up through a trap door. He points an elongated finger at Bloom, the man in the Macintosh. Don't you believe a word, he says. That man is Leopold Macintosh, the notorious fire raiser. His real name is Higgins. Bloom. Shoot him! Dog of a Christian. So much for Macintosh. Okay. What do you think about that? It makes no sense to me at yeah. all. So he's... The man in the Macintosh is saying Bloom is the real Macintosh. Mm -hmm. So all these qualities that we've been hearing described, you know, Bloom is the real one. Right. His real name is Higgins, which is his mother's maiden name. And Bloom denies it. Mm. So he kind of gains some power in Cersei. In Oxen of the Sun, he's kind of, you know, kind mm. of a, in a lowly state. But here he's toppling the mighty Leopold Bloom at the height of his power and popularity. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, he does so by claiming Bloom is a member of his own clan, mm. Leopold Macintosh. So, takeaways from all of these. He is mentioned in Ithaca as well. We'll talk about that eventually. Um, these descriptions of Macintosh are all we can really claim to know about him he is a a lovelorn raincoat clad figure who frequents cemeteries eats dry bread and bovril and is possibly mentally ill poverty stricken and vengeful hmm. but who is he the answer is i don't know and scholars have felt the same way for decades hmm. uh and but really no one has stitched together a grand unified theory of macintosh yet hmm. that everyone kind of agrees on um some commentators honestly have simply thrown up their hands in exasperation uh literary scholar philip f herring for instance stated that macintosh was simply quote his author's deceitful ploy to keep us guessing hmm. uh i don't think we should fall victim to that negativity though dermot i think we can still you know um learn some things from this because even by the end of this examination we probably won't have a definitive answer but we can still learn a lot about the themes of ulysses through examining this enigmatic character mm -hmm. maybe the real man in the macintosh is the friends we made along the way have you stopped to consider that let's mention here claude sykes who was an american friend of joyce's while he was living in zurich Sykes recalled how Joyce would go around asking people who they thought the man in the Macintosh might be after mm. they'd read Ulysses. So setting aside that maybe this was some like next level trolling on Joyce's part, uh, I think this implies that there is an answer to be had and that since Joyce put this question to non-Irish folks in Switzerland, the answer does not require specialized knowledge of Dublin in 1904. Mm. Uh, so let's proceed in the belief that there is an answer that can be discerned by a person other than James Joyce. All right. We're not going to, not going to be negative. So educated guesses at Macintosh's identity are many, and they fall broadly into three categories. A, 
that Macintosh might be a real person or a character from the Joycean Expanded Universe, or the JEU, as scholars would call it. We're starting it here today. Um, so he's, he's a pre-existing person. Uh, that B, Macintosh might be a supernatural entity of some sort, which you've already leaned into. Mm-hmm. Or C, that Macintosh is purely conceptual. He's not a person at all. Mm. Um, supernatural or otherwise. So um, my thought before I really researched this was I've always imagined him to be either the god of death or Patty Dignam's secret lover. (laughs) It's one of those two. But um, I've read dozens of essays and articles at this point in Macintosh's identity, and I have developed a new conclusion that's not one of those, uh, and you'll have to wait until the end to hear that. Okay. All right. Um, so what I want to do is let's start with the assumption that Macintosh is based on an identifiable person. It could be from real life or from literature. Okay. So let's explore this idea. These tend to be the most frequently repeated ones. Both of our um, listeners' guesses today were from other people from the JEU, mm-hmm. right? Right. It's an obvious place to start. Um, Many, many characters in the works of Joyce are based on people that he knew. Um, and Ulysses is rife with literary par- parables uh, or parallels both to his own work and to other works. So, uh, you know, it makes sense. Um, you know, in that vein, we know that Stephen, Daedalus, Leopold Bloom, and Molly Bloom all have parallels in Homer's Odyssey via metempsychosis. Um, so let's start there. Stuart Gilbert, who is the author of the first Ulysses reading guide, Ulysses, a study in the 1930s, uh, and a friend of Joyce, agreed with this too. Mm-hmm. All right. He posits in Ulysses, a study that Macintosh is a parallel to, I apologize to any Greek speakers out there, he's a parallel to Theoclymenos, who is a wandering soothsayer who predicts the slaughter of Penelope's suitors and then disappears from the narrative without an explanation. So Macintosh's prediction in the the case of Ulysses is a choice to wear a raincoat on a sunny day, correctly foreshadowing the thunderstorm that occurs during Oxen of the Sun and kind of sets Stephen on edge. Mm-hmm. Um, Joyce's use of Homeric illusion is v- very heavily based on the work of French critic Victor Berard. And it was Joyce who called Gilbert's attention to Berard's analysis of Theoclymenus. Hmm. Um, this kind of works, but I don't really find this satisfying. I mean, hmm. um, it fulfills kind of the scaffolding of illusion, but it doesn't really satisfy any larger narrative or thematic arc. Really, especially his soothsayer uh, ability is just wearing a raincoat. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe we've stumbled onto it right here, right now. Um, This theory, though, led Joyce scholar Robert M. Adams to conclude that Joyce simply had too many parallels built into his schemata, uh, more than he could ever really use, so there's just some strays. Mm -hmm. I also don't like that theory. Mm. I I don't like the ones that are just like, ah, it's nothing. Because I think it's something. (laughs) We should treat it as something, and maybe it is nothing. Um, As discerning readers, though, which... You all are. 
um, we must ask ourselves the following. If Joyce made the effort to knit this complex illusion into the fabric of Ulysses, because it pops up again and again in episodes that he wrote over multiple years, what purpose does it serve? I don't think there's anything accidental in Ulysses. That's always how I've approached this podcast. Mm-hmm. Is there nothing accidental? Everything was put there on purpose because you don't write Ulysses and just throw random things and forget about them. Right. Um, I've always operated from that point of view. And it might not be true, but that's how I approach Ulysses. You could see the occasional mm-hmm. accident happening, but mm-hmm. this is something more willed and deliberate, isn't it? If yeah. it keeps coming back to it. And there are there are accidents in Ulysses. Sure, yeah. But this this doesn't look like mm, one of them. It just feels like lazy analysis to be like, that's probably nothing. Mm. It's like when I had to do math homework in high school, if I didn't know the answer, sometimes I would write like no no answer, like unable to be calculated, because occasionally that was the answer. Mm -hmm. And I would just always write that if I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. But that was um, (laughs) laziness on my part. (laughs) So I don't want to do that here. This is not. Algebra 2 in Mr. Greening's class. So um, one thing we can always ask ourselves no matter what is what does this tell us about the larger themes in the novel? And I think that's really key. That's why I don't really like that it's nothing or it's this really obscure minor figure in the Odyssey because mm-hmm. I don't feel like they're fulfilling that thematic need mm-hmm. that Macintosh should fulfill, in my opinion. Uh, we should also ask ourselves, what does it tell about Leopold Bloom? Because he's always kind of attached to Bloom in some way. So if a Macintosh theory doesn't satisfactorily answer these questions, then I think it's okay to set it aside. And that satisfactorily answer is very subjective. Um, I'm going to use my subjectivity. You might come to a different conclusion, and that's totally fine. But um, Ulysses is definitely packed with plenty of little Easter eggs, um, to be discovered by those with some insider knowledge. But um, I think Macintosh is just too prominent to be one of these Easter eggs. Mm. So that's kind of the assumptions that I'm operating from. What do you think so far? Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's start by exploring the premise mm-hmm. that Macintosh is a real person. So there's an abundance of hints and clues that can be teased out to seem like Joyce has built a secret message into his novel about certain political or literary figures from that time or thereabouts. Mm. But some of these, while intriguing, for me, fall short on that question of themes in connection to Leopold Bloom. There are more than I can possibly talk about here, so I'm going to look at two. Uh, Number one is that Macintosh is James Clarence Mangan, who's a a well-known poet from earlier in the 19th century, um, we visited his grave with Martin Mooney in, uh, what was the video called? Uh, the Poets, Poets of, of Glass and Evans mm-hmm. on our YouTube channel. Yep. Check it out and we'll make sure to link this in the show notes as well. Joyce certainly admired Mangan during his own university days. And Mangan was indeed a jilted eccentric who wore a brown cloak. But if Macintosh is Mangan... What purpose does it serve within Ulysses apart from being a fun Easter egg hunt? And that question I cannot answer. Mm. And there are people who have written papers that have appeared in literary journals that support this thesis. So what the hell do I know? The other one is that I want to talk about as a real person is weather up. (laughs) I'm going to wait for your shock to to die down. (laughs) Um, Gilbert, who originally said that he thought 
Macintosh was Theoclimenos. Later claimed that Macintosh was really Mr. W. Weatherup, who was a man that once worked for James's father, John Joyce. Weatherup um, does get a fairly substantial shout out in Eolus, the episode that follows this, with a headline section that says um, what Weatherup said. But beyond that, how unsatisfying would it be if Weatherup was the... <laughs> The answer to this riddle? Yeah. But, That'd be a bummer. A bit weak. Yeah. Also, what's the point of asking one, anyone in Zurich if they could guess the name of some guy that Joyce's father knew at one point? Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. um, in his book, Surface and Symbol, Robert M. Adams states, why don't you give that quote a read? But if Macintosh is really only Weatherup, and Weatherup only an ancient friend of Joyce's father, we may be excused for feeling that the fewer answers we have for the novel's riddles, the better off we are. As with Stephen's shaggy dog riddle at the school, the puzzle is less puzzling than the answer. Yeah. So that's another guy kind of doing one of these. Mm -hmm. Throwing his hands up in exasperation. We don't want to do that because we're not going to be negative. Uh, (laughs) This is my inspirational talk. So... I don't know. I, I didn't really find any that mentioned Macintosh is a real person. I found very satisfying. I think instead, let's look at the idea that Macintosh is a fictional person. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps another character from the JEU, mm-hmm. the Joycean Extended Universe. Uh, Joyce was quite fond of tossing Dubliner's characters into Ulysses. We've looked at a ton of them already. Most of the men attending Patty Dignam's funeral appeared in the Dubliner's story, Grace. Uh, So this seems like actually a really solid starting place. Um, Additionally, a character from a Dubliner's story that we haven't talked about called A Painful Case appears, or she doesn't appear, but she's mentioned in Hades. And this is Mrs. Emily Sinico. And she is mentioned in the paragraphs following Macintosh's appearance, where Bloom says, quote, last time I was here was Mrs. Sinico's funeral. Or Papa Two, the love that kills. So, painful case uh, tells the story of James Duffy and Mrs. Sinico, and James Duffy's who we're going to focus on here. These two have, um, I say, what we would call now an emotional affair. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no real contact between them, but they clearly have feelings for each other. Duffy is sort of an overly serious aging bachelor, and Mrs. Sinico is a married woman with an inattentive husband. Hmm. Um, And their affair starts to get a little too real for Duffy, and he breaks it off. He breaks off communication with her. And later, he sees an article in the newspaper reporting that Mrs. Mrs. Sinico has died uh, by accidentally falling in front of a train. Oops. But Duffy supposes it wasn't an accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a very sad story, obviously. Um, Bloom must have known the Sinecos because he recalls attending her funeral in night, which would have been in 1903, uh, three separate times in Ulysses. Um, perhaps. So the theory goes then that Macintosh is a bereaved Duffy mourning a lady who is dead, uh, as described in Cyclops and Oxen. Mm -hmm. And that Bloom thinks of Mrs. Sinico's grave. Maybe it's not far away from... Uh, Patty Dignam's grave, and he mistakes the man in the Macintosh for being part of their funeral party when really he's there on his own. Hmm. This is a pretty popular theory. It's solid, I think. Um, in a way, this overlaps with my theory that Macintosh was Dignam's secret lover. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> this is now this is my own editorializing here. There's really nothing to support this. Well, there's a little bit of textual evidence to support it, but if you're if you're doing one that you're shaking your head no, that's fine. Um, because I'm going to uh, debunk myself immediately. Maybe Duffy was actually a very closeted gay man, and that's why he pulled away from Mrs. Sinico, and now he regrets her untimely end because he wasn't honest with her. Hmm. Um, I was drawn to this line that Duffy had written to Mrs. Sinico in one of their final correspondences. This is what gave me this idea when I reread the story. Love between man and man is impossible because there must not be sexual intercourse and friendship between man and woman is impossible because there must be sexual intercourse. Right. Okay. So it's a complicated line of thinking. Yeah. And I always, I, what I thought is like, why even bring up the man and man thing if you're not thinking about that? Mm. You know? Other than some kind of weird parallel construction. So, however, so that, that was where I kind of thought like, oh, maybe there's this whole subtext to it you know, where he's a bachelor for that reason. Like, mm -hmm. a confirmed bachelor, I think, used to mean... It could mean gay. Gay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what allowed him to get close to her, and then he realized, oh, I shouldn't have done that, and then pulled back. But he's, he's quite a cold character in, in Painful Case. Actually, he's not very sympathetic, in my opinion. However, and this is why I don't think this is anything, but just this is how I read everything. Um, but... Uh, Stanislaus Joyce, who's James Joyce's younger brother, wrote in his um, biography of James called My Brother's Keeper that James had based Duffy on him, on Stanislaus, uh, who was a lifelong curmudgeonly bachelor. Mm -hmm. And the lines quoted above were actually written by Stanislaus Joyce and later included in the text of A Painful Case. And that James was worried that Stanislaus would end up miserable and isolated like Duffy. And so he included Stanislaus's own words in his short story to kind of shock his brother out of his... Uh, hermitude mm -hmm. uh thus my theory is totally shattered mm. and I, I don't think it works um so if you were doing angry head head shake no you you win <laughs> um but uh james duffy may not have been stignum's secret lover but i think he's a stronger case for mash and macintosh than weather up mm -hmm. right yeah um he fits some of the key descriptions um I'm not totally convinced that he fits the bill. Sorry, guys. Uh, I think it would, I would be more convinced by this theory if he only appeared in Hades, but in the graveyard scene. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure what purpose it would serve for James Duffy to make a handful of other cameos, unless like James Joyce was really like driving the point home to Stanislaus. You're gonna be this weird bovril swilling homeless man in the insane, insane it, asylum if you don't partner off eating dry bread it's it seems a bit much though yeah i think the the first story is already a bit much like let stanislaus be stanislaus but you know all right um next theory uh is that it kind of in the same vein i would say the james duffy theory and this theory are the two i hear the most common which is that macintosh is james joyce himself and I, I think you mentioned this in our last Blooms and Barnacles episode, mm -hmm. too. Mm. Right. I have a picture here. Can you describe yeah, it? Yeah, it's Stan Lee, the uh, inventor of many of the uh, 
mm-hmm. Marvel superheroes mm-hmm. who uh, famously did a cameo in every movie that was made uh, mm-hmm. while, while, he's, while, while he was he alive. Was alive. Yeah. I think they tried to insert little placeholder nods to him. Too, mm-hmm. you know? Well, in this one, it's from Doctor Strange, and he is on a, I think it's a bus reading The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. Mm-hmm. So, which I, 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 I like that picture, so I went with that one. But this is, uh, maybe this is James Joyce's Stan Lee cameo. Mm-hmm. So, like James Joyce with his extended universe. Did you know Stan Lee also has a, a cinematic universe called the MCU? Really? Yeah. I've never heard. I've it never stands watched for Marvel's about... Cinematic Universe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so in the same way, maybe Joyce uh, is kind of turning up in his own work. Uh, it's kind of a stylistic choice, a little winky wink mm-hmm. uh, nod. Um, Hitchcock too. I, he I wants his yeah. characters to look him, turn around and look him in the eyes. Yeah. Hitchcock did this. Yeah. Um, this theory is supported, like I said, by many of our listeners, mm-hmm. and also by famed Russian novelist Vladimir Nabokov, mm-hmm. Nabokov, uh, author of Lolita and other things. Um, he, yeah, he believes, like I said, that Joyce appearing in the guise of Macintosh allows Bloom to gaze upon his creator. Mm-hmm. Um, as evidence, Nabokov pointed to a passage from Scylla and Charybdis, the ninth episode, where Stephen expounds on one of the bard himself, William Shakespeare's quotes, which he says, He has hidden his own name, a fair name, William, in the plays, a superhero, a clown there, as a painter of old Italy set his face in the dark corner of his canvas. So if it's good enough for Shakespeare, it's good enough for Joyce. Yeah, those Renaissance painters that stick their little heads mm-hmm. in some... Yeah, I was usually looking out at the yeah. uh, at the viewer too. Mm-hmm. As a giveaway. Yeah, so I mean, I think the reason this is so popular uh, is that it's satisfying in as much as it offers us an answer to a question that seemingly has no answer. Mm-hmm. Oh, Macintosh is inscrutable because it's just an author cameo. Case closed. Mm. Like James Duffy, though, I think this would work better if Macintosh didn't pop up outside Glasnevin Cemetery. Uh, it doesn't work as an author cameo for me if James McIntosh is, you know, again, like chugging Bovril and stepping in front of cavalcades and yeah. mourning a lost love. I'm just not sure where those details fit in. And being laughed at as a maniac by a bunch of students. Well, then, actually, that, that, I don't know. He, he really had trouble with the other medical students when he was in school. Mm. So maybe, maybe. Um, you know, cause people are, some of the people in that are, you know, Mulligan and Lynch who are based on friends of his in Dublin. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're, it's, it's not totally random, but, um, I don't know, like, doesn't Joyce have enough authorial presence in Ulysses in the form of both Bloom and Daedalus? Mm-hmm. Like, he has t- the two main characters are both based on him at different stages in his life. Yeah. Um, I suppose the one way this would work for me is that Macintosh functions as the Holy Ghost in the Trinity where Bloom and Stephen are father and son. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. A little bit stronger than James Duffy. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, if you're listening to this, you probably see that there's a lot more to this video slash podcast. So, um, overall, I actually, the more I read about this, the more I've come to think that Macintosh does not represent a human person from the temporal realm. Mm -hmm. Um, he's just too otherworldly. Like, um, 
he can just appear and disappear at will. Uh, he seems to be only visible to certain people. Um, he's skulking around in a graveyard like a goth teenager. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's eating dry bread while wandering in traffic. I mean, the theories that posit Macintosh is human tend to leave out a lot of these details that focus on his presence like in the graveyard. Like, maybe who, who could he have been there to see? Hmm. But they don't really talk about, you know, why he's doing this other weird stuff. And I think the, the, the image of him coming up from a trap door in Cersei 2 makes me feel like he's a product of Bloom's unconscious mind hmm. in the Jungian sense, which we'll get to. So, um... Perhaps Macintosh is a supernatural being of some sort. After all, Shakespeare also relied on ghosts to drive his plots. You know, it's good enough for Shakespeare, good enough for Joyce. Mm-hmm. If we're looking to Macintosh's traits to develop themes, it might be easier to do that if we're not trying to shoehorn him into a pre-existing uh, human identity. You know, um... Another of Ulysses' great thematic mysteries is that question that Stephen poses in Proteus. What is the the word known to all men? Um, So maybe Macintosh can shed some light on that as well because common interpretations of that are that it's either love or death, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, both of which are major themes in Ulysses, both of which are embodied in the presence of Macintosh. James Duffy's story involves both love and death. Um, But are there other interpretations of Macintosh that would include these themes of love and death? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I was pausing for dramatic effect, but uh, I I, I think that that's a a justified response. Mm. It's hard, isn't it? Mm. Ulysses' Mm. business. Mm. Like the Holy Ghost idea. Mm. Also, the Bovril is like his wine and his dry bread. It's like his bread and wine. Yeah. He's a, a debased Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, that's that's your favorite one. We already had the Pope drinking Bovril, so there is that. That's angle. true. All right. Let's talk about a spookier version of Macintosh. The graveyard is the setting of Hades, which allows us to bridge the gap between the living and the dead. Um, and it's, it's the love for a friend that brings Bloom into the graveyard. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hated myself as soon as I said that. Uh, Macintosh first manifests in the great necropolis of Glasnevin Cemetery. Maybe that's a clue to his identity. Scholar John Gordon has written extensively that he believes Macintosh to be the ghost of Rudolph Bloom, Leopold's father. Hmm. So that's what we're going to explore now. And, I mean, it sounds really silly when you say it in one sentence, but his evidence is shockingly good. Okay. Um, I'll spare you. I'm not totally sold on this one either. Um, but I, this one is going to be stronger than you think. Um, that Macintosh is Leopold Bloom's deceased father. Um, and like I said, he's crafted some very well argued, well-rounded arguments incorporating many of Macintosh's traits. And uh, for instance, that, that uh, a ghost could easily cross the path of the viceregal cavalcade unscathed. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. A ghost can walk in front of a, 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 a carriage. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, why does Macintosh wear a Macintosh? Well, because Rudolph Bloom's sciatica could predict the weather. As Bloom states in 
Cersei. I have felt this instant a twinge of sciatic in my left gluteal muscle. It runs in our family. Poor dear Papa, a widower, was a regular barometer from it. Right? So that's why he can predict the weather. He wears a raincoat on a sunny day because his sciatica is acting up. Okay. All right? Um, Rudolph loved a lady who was dead, his wife Ellen. She she predeceased him. Mm -hmm. And he really never recovered from his grief over her loss. In fact, in Ithaca, Bloom recalls fragments of the letter that Rudolph sent to him before his father took his own life in Ennis, um, which is this. Tomorrow will be a week that I received. It is no use, Leopold, to be... With your dear mother, that is not more to stand, to her. All for me is out. Be kind to Athos, Leopold, my dear son, always of me. Das Herz, Gott, dein. So this makes it sound like um, a desire to be with his deceased wife motivated his suicide. Mm -hmm. So he loves a lady who's dead. Mm -hmm. Okay, check that box. Um, now that Rudolph is dead, also, he continues to wander the earth mourning the lady who is dead a really common trope in ghost stories is the ghost has some kind of unfinished business mm -hmm. and uh they have to attend to it before they can cross over to the afterlife um also i think the ghosts of suicides tend to be more unsettled mm. um because rudolph died by suicide he would not be allowed burial in glasnevin beside his wife and thus he is buried in ennis on the other side of the country mm -hmm. Um, Bloom thinks about how his mother Ellen's grave is, quote, over there while attending Dignam's funeral. Um, and so we can infer that if Macintosh is lurking near her grave, he's not too far from Dignam's grave. Mm -hmm. Um, and earlier in Hades, Bloom also thinks about the tradition of burying suicides with a stake in their heart to keep them from returning to the land of the living. We talked a lot about suicide stigma. Um, so... Also, the ghost of a father who appears to his son due to unfinished business ties Ulysses into Hamlet. And there's a very strong Hamlet motif running throughout the entire course of Ulysses. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, King Hamlet and Rudolph Bloom were both killed by poison. Um, though Rudolph's was self-administered. Mm -hmm. It wasn't poured in his ear. Do you think it would kill someone to pour poison in their ear? That's strange. It's, yeah. <laughs> um... In Oxen of the Sun, Macintosh is called Walking Macintosh of Lonely Canyon. Um, and if we consider this alongside Bloom, so Bloom misquotes Hamlet in Lestragonians. Uh, so in Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 5, King Hamlet is described as, quote, doomed for a certain term to walk the night. Mm -hmm. But Bloom imprecisely renders this in Lestragonians as, quote, doomed for a certain time to walk the earth. Right. So his version of King Hamlet would be his father. Um, so if Ru Rudolph is still floating around Dublin 18 years after his death, this is a more apt description because he's not stalking the night. He's just wandering the earth. Right. This takes place in the middle of the day. Um, yeah. Especially he does seem to get around on foot. We see him walking more than once. Mm -hmm. um, and he doesn't really seem to be bothered appearing in the day, which... Ghosts usually come out at night, right? Um, also in that Oxen passage, wordplay such as Runefall connects Bloom, Macintosh, and Dignam's funeral. Similarly, Joyce wrote in his notes, remember that phrase trumpery insanity? Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with some kind of prescient commentary on American politics. Yeah. 
Badumts. You can put in a rim shot for me there, because that's my hilarious joke. Um, but this was a, a corruption of the phrase temporary insanity, which is a, a phrase that Morton Cunningham used in Hades to soften Jack Power's disdainful comments about suicide. If you could read that. The greatest disgrace to have in the family, Mr. Power added. Temporary insanity, of course, Martin Cunningham said decisively. We must take a charitable view of it. Right. Mm. So, um, now according to Gordon, Macintosh's taste for Bovril can be read as a Homeric parallel. Mm -hmm. So, um, do you know how to placate hungry ghosts in the ancient Greek underworld? No. You feed them blood. Okay. So Bovril is a beef tea, and so it parallels the hot, beefy beverage of of cattle blood that uh, Odysseus feeds to the ghosts mm. of the underworld, okay. so that they'll talk to him. Um, Macintosh is a sort blood of blood again. The blood and the bread. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm, just, I'm just putting my yeah. my my fucking no, Eucharistic. No, it's fine. I, I like I like it makes me happy when you have a theory too. Okay. Um, Macintosh seems to be a hungry ghost of sorts. Not only is he eating bread and bovril, mm -hmm. but he's pining for his lost love and just nourishing himself as best he can on these you know worldly treats. Mm -hmm. uh, like Macintosh, bovril and dry bread are not treats. I don't. I just couldn't think of another word. Uh, but like Macintosh, Rudolph was also once a prosperous sit who fell into financial ruin towards the end of his life. Mm. Um, and Macintosh is named Dusty Rhodes, who appears in the Bloom family genealogy in Circe. There's this whole begat thing. Um, I was I have this here to have you read it, but I don't know that you want to read this because there's there's <laughs> yeah, some words in there that you have to pronounce. Uh, listeners, um, you're going to have to bear with me here. Mm -hmm. Ben Maimun and Ben Maimun begat Dusty Rhodes and Dusty Rhodes begat Benamore and Benamore begat Joan Smith and Joan Smith begat Savarganovich and Sigorvanovich begat Jasperstone and Jasperstone begat Vingachuniimi and Vingachuniimi begat Zombathli and Zombathli begat Virag and Virag begat Bloom and Vocha Bitor Nomen Eos Emmanuel. Okay. So it's meant to mimic the uh, genealogy of Christ in the Bible. Yes. Hmm. So Dusty Rhodes is there as his he's, ancestor. He's in the genealogy, yeah. Yes. So in the same episode in the Saul from Circe, uh, Bloom appears in the guise of his father, mm -hmm. donning, quote, dusty brogues. Mm -hmm. which, what are brogues? Shoes. Yep, dusty brogues and stating, quote, I am ruined. A few pastels of aconite, the blinds drawn, a letter. Then lie back to rest. He breathes softly. No more. I have lived. Fair, farewell. Mm. And so it's Bloom in dusty brogues mm -hmm. um, acting out his father's last moments. Um, I guess the big problematic element of this theory is why wouldn't Bloom recognize his own father? Yes. What do you think about that? Yeah, he's, he's he, the the likeness has to be different right mm -hmm. like he doesn't look like him but why would that be for you see my dear dermot odysseus did not recognize his own father yeah. upon returning to ithaca mm -hmm. um because so much time had passed it was 20 years which is almost the same amount of time since bloom's father has died right and uh because his father laertes had become quote all tattered and torn mm -hmm. and in the intervening decades right right okay um, when Odysseus meets him, he is coated in dust and ashes mm. and pining for death because he is grieving his wife. 
Okay. Additionally, Joyce listed Odysseus's father in his Lenati schema for Hades. Bloom's lack of recognition bolsters this theory and ties it into the the that Homeric motif that's so important to Ulysses. We talk about quite a bit. On top of these thematic reasons, uh, even if Macintosh were the spitting image of his father, Bloom is not expecting to see him in Glasnevin in the middle of the day, mm-hmm. right? Um, Bloom is a very rational thinker. He doesn't believe in ghosts. I think Stephen Dedalus believes in ghosts, but um, seeing a ghost to him is totally incompatible with his worldview. Hmm. Very materialistic mind. Um, so the fact that people sometimes see what they expect to see is demonstrated in that anecdote by John O'Connell, the caretaker of Glasnevin Cemetery. Remember Mulcahy from the Coombe, mm-hmm. who sees... Who looks up the, the the face of Jesus and said that you know that doesn't look like Mulcahy Mo, from the Coombe. Right. They got his face all wrong because mm-hmm. he's looking up expecting to see his friend, and he, he sees Jesus and then said oh, I did it wrong. Yeah. Right. So if Jesus can become Mulcahy from the Coombe, Rudolph Bloom can be Dusty Rhodes on a Macintosh. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um. So if you, our dear listener, share Bloom's materialist worldview. It might be hard to accept that a literal ghost has appeared to Bloom under the very mundane circumstances of Glasnevin Cemetery. Uh, Joyce, for his part, uh, had a supernatural worldview when it suited him. As a young man, he participated in a vigil at his mother's deathbed for her ghost. He held a lifelong interest in numerology, mm-hmm. um, which certainly figures into Ulysses. Um he was never a, dev- a devotee to any particular system, but Joyce certainly had an interest in occultism, spiritualism that was sort of popular amongst intellectuals of his era. Um, like Catholicism and psychoanalysis, he didn't wholeheartedly believe in any of this, but he did incorporate aspects of occult belief into his work when it suited him. And so I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that Joyce would put a literal ghost into Ulysses. Hmm. I think it's a strong theory. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds strong. Well, that was good. And uh, uh, we'll see you next week. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. we have more. Yes. You haven't heard my theory yet. So, okay. This is a long one, but, you know, you'll be all right. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, So, if a ghost is just too much for you, is a ghost too much for you? No. Okay. If a ghost is just too much for you, listener, uh, let's take a look at uh, my final category of Macintosh theories, which is that he's purely conceptual. Um, he is an entity neither natural nor supernatural, but uh, an entity of pure thought and symbol occurring in the minds of his observers rather than the physical world. Mm-hmm. Right, So he's an idea. This is where my personal theory falls to. Um, commentators who take this route of explanation generally see Macintosh as a manifestation of some aspects of Bloom's psyche. So, in other words, Bloom is seeing a version of himself reflected in Macintosh. Um, Jonathan Brick Rowan describes, um, or he points to a description in Ithaca in which Bloom imagines various lowly states that he has managed to avoid, um, some of which include folks he has met throughout the day on June 16th. Sandwichmen, distributor of throwaways, nocturnal vagrant, insinuating sycophant, maimed sailor, blind stripling. These will be familiar to 
you know, people have read the whole of Ulysses. In the very last line, line of this, Bloom describes, quote, Nader of misery, the aged, impotent, disenfranchised rate supported moribund lunatic pauper. Hmm. That's the, the most miserable you can be. Um, Macintosh is a, I don't know I said that so musically, he's a manifestation then, in this theory, of Bloom's fear of what he might become in old age. Hmm. He saw his father fall on, old, on hard times, not much of a social safety net in these days. Um, and due to Rudy's death, Bloom's son, Leopold Bloom is already wrangling with fear and insecurity about his manhood and his failure at fathering a son and heir because you know your son would look after you. That was meant to be your social safety net. Um, Notice that in the sequence in Oxen, Macintosh is said to have come to the Richmond Asylum complaining of lead in his penis. So rather than being a physical blockage, making him unable to ejaculate and conceive a son, the lead is a psychological blockage blockage that is holding back the uh, lead in his pencil, so Mm. to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, Bloom's sexual blockage is more psychological than physical. Um, disenfranchised and rate supported go together with pauper in this description we know that Macintosh is down on his luck given the description of his wearables in oxen of the sun particularly his bare socks uh, we can infer that he drinks bovril because he is malnourished and hoping to get some relief he's described as wants it real bad uh, and he's eating dry bread and wandering rocks because that's what's available to him mm. you know mm-hmm. um if that's all you can get, you're going to eat bovril and dry bread. Maybe not of choice or desire, but just because you need something to eat. Um, if he's a pauper, he may well be rate-supported. And what this means is he's living on money for the poor that was um, paid for by taxes, which are called rates in that era. Um, so at that time, only taxpayers were allowed to vote. So by accepting taxpayers' money for support, Macintosh would lose his right of franchise or right of vote, so Mm. he's disenfranchised. Um, Bloom is currently a comfortable sit, if not an enormously prosperous one, but Macintosh represents how far a once comfortable man can fall. And we've talked many times about how the middle class is quite precarious. Mm -hmm. You could fall out of it more easily than you like to think. Uh, Macintosh's love has, quote, slung her hook, which leads to his downfall. Molly may be on the cusp of slinging her hook, meaning she might be leaving Bloom for Boylan now that they've kind of gotten together. Mm-hmm. Um, so while anxiety about sliding into poverty may be a long, slot, long shot in isolation, knowing that Macintosh fell into ruin after losing his lady love makes Bloom feel like he is one step closer to the personal nader uh, than he realized. Moribund and lunatic are pretty easily connected to Macintosh. Moribund means near death. He seems pretty deathly. You know, I've just debated whether or not he could literally be a ghost. Hmm. Uh, Macintosh is identified as a patient from an insane asylum. Bloom seems both hale and level-headed, but there is a passage in Circe where Dr. Mulligan shows up to diagnose Bloom. Uh, with a panoply of mental and physical maladies. And at the top of the doctor's diagnosis, he states, quote, Dr. Bloom is bisexually abnormal. He has recently escaped from Dr. Eusis's private asylum for demented gentlemen. So um, there is some dark corner of Bloom's mind that fears that he will be found mentally unfirm and locked away in Dottyville like Macintosh. Right. He's a man of, you know, I think a lot of this results from Bloom's outsider status. He doesn't really fit into this kind of conservative conformist environment. 
Um, some of this is cultural. He's a Jewish man in Catholic Dublin. He's a more feminine man in a very macho culture. Uh, would that be good enough to declare him bisexually abnormal? Maybe then. Maybe then. Or he'd feel that. He'd fear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know what the burden of proof was to lock someone away in the lunatic asylum. Mm. Um... Uh, Macintosh isn't the only lunatic that Bloom encounters on June 16th. It's not um, affirming language that we would use now in this day and age, I assure you, but mm-hmm. uh, it is the language of Ulysses. In Lester Gonians, um, Bloom kind of grins as he and Mrs. Breen watch Cashel Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmaurice, Tisdall, Farrell weaving down the street. You'll know what that means one day, Dermot. Uh, Mr. Breen and his mania over UP Up. Don't disturb Bloom's thoughts the way that Macintosh does. And in Ithaca, Bloom frames Macintosh's identity as a self-involved enigma. So he sees something of himself in Macintosh that he doesn't see in the other two men. Hmm. Who he sees in Lestergonians who are very, um, you know, something's going on psychologically with those guys, we'll just say. Um, and notice, too, how while standing on the strand in Nausicaa, Bloom allows his own identity and that of Macintosh to merv- merge ever so briefly. That's the way to find out. Ask yourself, who is he now? The mystery man on the beach. Prize titbit story by Mr. Leopold Bloom. Payment at the rate of one guinea per column. And that fellow today at the graveside in the brown Macintosh. Right. So he's imagining Gertie McDowell seeing him as this mysterious man on the beach. Mm. And then he his thoughts go then to the man in the Macintosh. So he's fantasizing about one of his little money-making schemes, Mm -hmm. writing a story for Titbits magazine. And, uh, you know, even though his thoughts are very far from the graveyard, his thoughts of himself and Macintosh are kind of overlapping here. Hmm. He doesn't think of CBOFTF and Mr. Breen from Lestragonians at this moment. Um, it's Macintosh that lurks in his subconscious mind. Mm. Something about Macintosh really threw him off in the way that these other kind of oddballs don't. And that brings me to my final idea, which is that Macintosh is just a state of mind, man. Um, To me, it feels like Macintosh really is just a creature of Bloom's subconscious. I shouldn't say just a, but that's kind of the space he occupies. The one thing that doesn't satisfy is why... Joe Hines and the medical students encounter him. Mm-hmm. So there's a weakness in this theory. Uh, but eh, Ulysses has its fair share of collective hallucinations, you have to admit. It's Bloom's experience of Macintosh that matters the most. Um, so in my opinion, this is my theory now, that Bloom is a manifest... Or, nah, that Macintosh is a manifestation of Bloom's Jungian shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe Jung's idea of the shadow? Uh, the shadow is the uh, aspects of our own unconscious mm-hmm. uh, that we suppress and we um, project them onto, in fa- shadow projection, we project things that mm-hmm. we dislike or fear about ourselves mm-hmm. onto other people. So um, it's, uh, you know, a person could be repressed sexually. Uh, they find out they're gay later in life. They've been repressing that. That's been shoved down into the shadow. Mm-hmm. Like it's not necessarily bad. It's just the parts of you that you, you can't consciously handle. Mm-hmm. And so in Jungian analysis, the whole point is to integrate the shadow. It's not to destroy it or remove it. It's to integrate the shadow and the parts of you make the darkness conscious. Mm-hmm. And it's not a pleasant process. Mm-hmm. It involves real uh, work. Um, 
and that doesn't mean you give in to the shadow either but you, you, you the more of you that is repressed the more violently you will project the shadow onto other people with very bad consequences for you and everyone around you and worse than this even is that according to Jung an entire civilization or country or group of people can have a collective shadow mm -hmm. that they then project onto people that they uh, imagine uh, carrying out the faults that they themselves fear that they have in themselves and I'll leave it to the listeners to find good examples of that for themselves okay so Bloom is certainly someone who's constantly tortured by fear and insecurity uh, that he is actively and forcibly suppressing mm -hmm. we've seen already examples of how he starts to think something unpleasant often about boiling and then just shoves it down mm -hmm. he shoves it hard um so bloom relates with mcintosh because he's seeing a dark aspect of himself like a literal projection you know yeah and the vision nags at him because mcintosh represents the aspects of himself that he hates the most that nadir of mi misery that he describes mm -hmm. that that's you know what you might become in Jung's view the shadow is the aspect of the let's see I think I've you, you covered some of this really well so if one is unable to face their shadow and understand it um, there like Dermot said there's a risk of projecting those shameful qualities out into the world and onto the people around you um, uh, some of this originates as a concept in psychoanalysis Projection is a defense mechanism to project the e uh, to protect the ego from shame. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, the the hidden shame of his shadow. Really, the idea that he's not man enough and that you know there is something wrong with him. He doesn't fit in. Why doesn't he fit in? What's wrong with him? Mm -hmm. um, shadow projection is done unconsciously. The person projecting is not necessarily cognizant of their projection, uh, but they can be made aware of it with some work, like Dermot said. And in Jungian analysis, shadow projection doesn't mean literally projecting an image into the world, but in Ulysses, Bloom's shadow can manifest in this way because there's a lot of, like, not strictly real material things that happen in Ulysses. So, you know, if we if we allow a ghost, holy or otherwise, we can allow Bloom's psyche projecting. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe he is just seeing some random old, he's seeing Rasher's tyranny walking around, mm -hmm. and he's like, oh, God, it's me. Yeah. You know, and the quasi-hallucinatory state of the very end of Oxen of the Sun. Mm. You know, he might just be seeing other different people. Um, and Joyce is kind of allowing us to fall into it because he's like putting little brown Macintosh men here and there. <laughs> Drive you crazy. The guy who said that he, he did it just to torture his readers, maybe he's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so... Bloom has already had some momentary visions earlier in the day. You remember his dark vision of the promised land mm -hmm. in Calypso and then the secondary vision of the golden-haired girl that runs through and disrupts the darkness. Mm. So he's had that little vision already. And right. the, the first episode where he appears, Bloom's experience in Ulysses starts out pretty mundane and then incrementally descends into hallucinatory madness by the point in Circe. Um, Macintosh's manifestation contributes this descent into the nightmare realm, the realm of the subconscious present in Circe, which is very much deals with the unseen parts of the mind, I think. Hmm. Um, and Bloom really is repressing an awful lot of dark thoughts. Molly's infidelity, Rudy's death, the anniversary of his father's suicide. Uh, throughout Ulysses, he thinks of these things repeatedly, and he often shuts the thoughts down as quickly as he can. I mean... You remember earlier in Hades when they passed Blaze's Boyland 
Yes. Um, outside the Red Bank Oyster Bar, and he just thinks worst man in Dublin, and then thinks about how great his nails look. Yeah. Right. In that moment, Jack Power awakens the pain that Bloom feels at the loss of his father when he refers to suicide as the greatest disgrace to have in a family. Mm. And Simon Dedalus's comments on Stephen's reprobate, reprobate friend book Mulligan much earlier in Hades draw out Bloom's pain and resentment at never being able to know his own son. Right. So Simon's kind of like always hanging out with that mm-hmm. terrible Mulligan, you know, jerk. And this is what Bloom thinks. Noisy, self-willed man, full of his son. He's right. Something to hand on. If little Rudy had lived, see him grow up, hear his voice in the house. Walking beside Molly in an Eaton suit. My son, me in his eyes. Strange feeling it would be, for me, just a chance. Mm-hmm. Bloom would love to have the opportunity to be pissed at his son, because mm-hmm. he never got to know his son. Yeah. So, the loss or betrayal from these different loved ones are the deepest pain and humiliation that Bloom feels. And they're all invoked by his accidentally insensitive carriage mates on the way to the cemetery yeah. before he sees Macintosh. Since Bloom hasn't dealt with these emotions consciously, they tend to bubble up here and there in his stream of consciousness, mm-hmm. right? The atmosphere of the graveyard overwhelms his ability to repress thoughts of his father and his son. And at the peak of those emotions, as he sees his friend's co- coffin being lowered into the ground, you know, he spots a man in an unseasonable outfit among the funeral party, a specter of death in a tattered raincoat. Mm-hmm. And against all odds, the same man appears again while Bloom is caught in a gaggle of drunken medical students on the threshold of descending into the nightmare of Circe. Um, In this episode, Bloom indicates that he and Bloom are related in Circe, right? He calls him Leopold Macintosh. Mm -hmm. And the way, again, Macintosh rises through a trap door uh, demonstrates that he's rising out from the subconscious, Mm. right? Um, A man in a brown Macintosh strings, springs up through a trap door. He points an elongated finger at Bloom. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you saw that in a dream, how would you interpret that? Yeah, it'd be scary. <laughs> it would be scary. So, Cersei is so firmly entrenched in a dreamlike atmosphere that it allows Macintosh to manifest his most aggressive state as a psychic attack on poor Leopold Bloom. Mm-hmm. The shadow arises once more at Bloom's zenith to rip him back down to his nadir through shame and disgrace. Mm. The mystery man's identity continues to perplex Bloom late into the evening. I mean, Macintosh may or may not be a real person. He could be a hallucination, a ghost, uh, several different men in similar coats. You know, no matter his true identity, for Bloom, he represents these tightly, most tightly repressed fears, death of family members, slide into destitution or insanity, Following the loss of his wife, Bloom is seeing his deepest fears reflected in Macintosh, whether or not Macintosh is real. Uh, notice Macintosh's identity is described in Ithaca as a self-involved enigma. Hmm. Bloom involved in himself. Um, until Bloom confronts his own fears and insecurities, his own shadow, Macintosh will remain an enigma. Hmm. That's the self-involved enigma, the shadow work you're talking about. It's very difficult, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Therapy's really hard. Um, in conclusion, take a sigh of relief. In conclusion, there is 
So anyway, that that's my theory of Macintosh is that he's Bloom's Jungian shadow, <laughs> tormenting him. What do you what do you think? It could be. Yeah. I do like the the, the his father idea too. Mm-hmm. That also fits very. It's a tightly. really it's a really strong theory. Yeah. A lot of the theories will kind of seize onto one point and then build from there. And what I liked about Gordon's theory is that he incorporates pretty mm. much every detail. Yeah. And he even like writes subsequent follow-up articles where he's like, I didn't talk about this thing, but here's why it works. Right. And it really does work when you, you read his reasoning. They, there there so. could also be an aspect of how we're unconsciously afraid or consciously afraid of becoming our parents. Mm-hmm. So you know, there can be a psychological component to that too. Mm-hmm. That, you, know, you can project your own fears and things onto this avatar yeah. or whatever it is. I, I tend to prefer those theories because they aren't just an Easter egg hunt. Hmm. They're, they really tie very deeply into the thematic elements of Ulysses. They tell us a lot about Leopold Bloom as a character, which I think is really important. Yeah. Um, and they, they add a lot more meaning to Ulysses as a whole than mm-hmm. uh, it's weather up. Yeah, it adds nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It should expand on the the mm-hmm. text if it's yep. if it's valid. And I think any any of these theories, there are lots of little bits and bobs in Ulysses that are like this. Mm-hmm. But I think scholars can really seize on, and you can come up with a theory, and then you, you get published in mm-hmm. the James Joyce Quarterly. Uh, we went through a similar process with a word that's known all men. Um, you know, you can listen back to that one if you want to mm-hmm. hear what I think about that. But um, I I yeah, that would be my guess is that he's. Uh, He's, he's not a real person. He's just a, you know. And I think, too, I mentioned at top that there are these little ripples of weirdness that start to appear in the very early stages of Ulysses. Things that aren't quite real, aren't mm. quite right. And then it all kind of culminates in Circe, where everything is a hallucination. Mm-hmm. But a hallucination we should treat as meaningful. So, um, real or not. In conclusion... All right. There's no way to know if any, none, or all of these theories are what Joyce had in mind. Here comes the party pooping. <laughs> Unless someone unearths a long-lost letter or journal in which Joyce states Macintosh's true identity, we are likely to remain in a state of unknowing. In the character of Macintosh, we are encouraged to embrace the unknowable. We can keep digging and speculating and postulating until we arrive at a conclusion that's personally satisfactory but in some ways it's kind of missing the point it's fun to do that it's fine to do that i'm not judging you but i think here's what i think the point is not all questions can be logicked into an answer macintosh then in conclusion is a zen koan it exists in a liminal space between answer and no answer mm-hmm. what is the space between answer and no answer called what's the sound of one hand clapping you know, the, the reason he exists is to draw your mind into this state. You're not meant to find an answer to that question. Um, the, the process of thinking about it and discovery is the true friends we met along the way. <laughs> so in the end, we can only project our own experiences onto Macintosh. And for those among us who want a, a concrete answer, what could be more terrifying Thank you and good night. That's all. All right. <laughs> you have any closing thoughts? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Well done. All right. Thanks for sitting with us through this whole 
ridiculously long thing, check out the Patreon. I'm really proud of our Strumpet City episode. Um, and other than that, we'll see you in two weeks. Yeah, we'll see you then. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.